electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Carl Quintanilla. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Fort and Deirdre Bosa. Coming up this hour, we're going to decipher the tech sell-off, the slices of tech that are performing and the ones that are not, how to position yourself for a bounce coming up next. Then Mazasan breaks some records. We'll look at the return of SoftBank and the Golden Goose this hour. Later on, Coinbase, number one on the App Store and making another controversial corporate change. We'll discuss, John. Yeah, and the NASDAQ swinging negative again so far this morning after a whipsaw day yesterday that saw it end in the green after a steep drop early. We're going to look at how to take advantage of the volatility in tech this hour. But two names to keep an eye on early, Fubo TV and Unity. Fubo, easily the biggest earnings mover of the morning as we see a big pop there and believe it's, it's even off the highs that it saw, up 13% right now. And swinging against the software stock narrative is Unity. Both CEOs will join us this hour. Well, John, let's dig into the tech sell-off and get more specific on which parts of tech are being hit the hardest. We've been talking about the semi-sell-off. Six of the biggest losers on the S&P today, they are chip stocks, the SMH ETF, down 10% in the last three months. But even those losses, they're dwarfed by some of the cloud stocks that have lost a quarter of their value in that time frame. And it's an even bigger divergence if you look at it versus the Dow. Here is a year-to-date chart of the Dow. It is still up 12% despite today's pullback. The NASDAQ still up 4%, but the Wisdom Tree cloud ETF down 13%. Some major components in there, Box, Adobe, Workday, Wix, they are down sharply today. And, John, I know we've been talking about some of the hottest names, though, that have run, you know, very high-flying over the last year or so. They are really taking it in the sell-off names like Zoom, Fastly, Snowflake. Once you dig into their valuations, though, they have come down quite a bit, but discrepancies here as well. Snowflake's EV-to-sales ratio still sitting just under 100, while Fastly has come down to about 17. So it does sort of reinforce the fact that there could be some opportunities in the sell-off. Yeah, um, I, th- I think investors have to slice these groups of stocks all kinds of different ways. I mean, we talk about cloud overall, and you've got like Adobe and Workday in there, but those are two very different stocks. I mean, Adobe is, what, 12% off of its 52-week high. I think Workday is closer to 20, you know, 17, 20% off. And, and so I think you have to look at who's leading in their particular area, Carl, not just all these cloud names together. Cloud is one of those things like tech. I mean, once it's been around for a while, it ceases to have meaning on its own. You got to look at strategically what these companies are able to pull off. 
Yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, we do tend to get lazy, D, over time. Uh, using a word to describe an entire basket when it's actually full of different silos. And by the way, we should mention, too, the macro backdrop of all of this, the idea that the enterprise is going to be spending more on cloud. That notion is going has not changed at all. It's about valuation and the degree to which other competing types of assets are going to alter the equation for who wants to invest. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Carl. I think that that thesis hasn't changed. It's just that these valuations and the macro environment, if you're going to eventually have rising interest rates, you've seen them run up so hot over the last year or so. So perhaps coming down to earth was expected. As I know John likes to say, it wasn't all that surprising. The question now is where's an attractive entry point? Guys, let's bring in Bessemer's Byron Dieter this morning. Software investor has talked to us in the past about his Mount SAS basket of software and cloud stocks. Manages, of course, the emerging cloud index, ticker EM Cloud, uh, which is up big in the last two years, off 25% in the last couple of months. Uh, Byron, welcome. It's great to have you. Always fun to be back. Thank you. So we, I mean, this is not a surprise, right? This whole... Uh, environment that we're entering into with rising inflation and maybe tax reform later on, but certainly the prospect of higher rates, uh, we knew was coming. We appear to be in the thick of it. How should viewers think about it at this point if you're invested in this space? People have been talking about the hot multiples for a while. I think the speed of the pullback is a bit surprising. What we were looking for was a little bit more of a, of a moderate sell down where you'd have this effect uh, perhaps over several quarters. But we're down 25% in three months, which is dramatic. However, put that in perspective, over six months, we're basically back to flat. And this sector was the top performing sector in all of tech last year, up over a, almost 100%. And so medium term, the sector is still meaningfully up. And overall, the fundamental performance here has still been quite strong. What do you think reverses sentiment going forward from here? Is it about some realization that either the Fed's got this under this macro picture under control or that some of these inflationary wins are, in fact, transitory? What 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 makes the turn? Well, I want to emphasize your prior comment, which is I think people have this narrative absolutely wrong that are asking about is the cloud fad over? This isn't a fad. People aren't going to go back to on premise software when they return to their offices. This is a replatforming of the industry. This is a macro trend. And we believe the major macro trend of tech of the decade. And so this is simply a profit taking and a multiple question. If you believe in this medium term or certainly long term, then you can see this as a buying opportunity. The world is now 25 percent off. And at some point, reentering these stocks at these levels could make a lot of sense. However, in the short term trade dynamics, if you're thinking about it that way, there's likely to be some volatility going through the summer as people are trying to find fair value in their personal bottom. Byron, one of the things I like about your Mount SAS grouping, Microsoft, Twilio, Shopify, Amazon, Adobe, Salesforce, is that you're not just looking at some kind of arbitrary group because they all do the same thing. And it seems to me in this kind of market, when you're looking at tech that has the potential to go higher, you got to look at who's got a platform. You got to look at maybe who's got the heft to do the right kind of M&A. And by heft, I mean not just money, but also rep reputation. And also, who's got the power to reshape this uh, landscape by moving into adjacent markets, right? I mean, that's going to make a difference in who can really grow from here. We, we believe fully. This Mount SAS bucket 
is the future of this group. Um, when you look at Fang, the mobile and internet trends are at a mature point. There's still some upside, but we think it's modest in comparison. Whereas the baton has been handed over to the cloud basket, these are the premier names in that space. They're growing at extremely high rates still, despite being at scale, and they're throwing off free cash flow. And so you can debate plus or minus what the clearing multiple is, but I don't think you can debate that they are going to be the flag bearers for tech ahead. And if you believe in the trend, you should hold these names. Byron, uh, have you seen any, any evidence of the sell-off that we're seeing in public markets and some of these names affecting any of the appetite in private markets, especially when you consider that there are some big investors making a lot of those deals in the private markets that have large holdings in public as well, names like Tiger Global and KOTU and SoftBank, which we're going to talk about later. We haven't yet. The multiples in the private side tend to lag. We expect it'll play out over the coming months. But demand is extremely high, and that's reflected in the IPO markets. Whether you look at UiPath of a few weeks ago, which was another blockbuster cloud IPO and Decacorn status, or within the Bessemer Venture Partners portfolio, Procore, which is on the virtual road this week for their IPO, um, you know, the, the demand is high. The Wall Street buyers continue to be thirsty, and you're seeing a lot of crossover investors, in fact, because they are so uh, thirsty for owning more of these names in their hypergrowth phases at their unicorn status. And so we don't think that's going to change. There will be a little bit of a lag as perhaps there's this pullback in multiples that comes through. But overall, the demand and the velocity is going to stay quite high over the coming quarters. What would have to happen for that to have an impact, the sell-off in uh, public markets and these cloud names? Would it have to last longer? I mean, late last year, we saw a lot of these really hot software names go public. We haven't seen as much of them lately. Is that partly have to do with market volatility? I think it's a short-term timing comment where right now we have over a 100 private cloud companies that are over a billion dollars. Literally, when we publish our Cloud 100 list this September, for the first time ever, every single name on that list will be over a billion dollars in market cap. We've never seen that in the history of cloud or in software. This is the highest quality basket of late stage private companies in the entire history of our industry. That group will start rolling through the public markets. We've seen a lot of them waiting for their Q4 financials, which is why you naturally have a Q2 run up uh, of IPOs. A little bit of this chop will impact pricing, but I don't see any slowdown in overall demand for the sector. And I think these IPOs will roll through. And I absolutely believe that the public investors that are so thirsty to hold these names that they're crossing over into private markets in very unusual ways will be eager buyers in public uh, IPOs, in direct listings, and potentially even some SPACs, which we haven't seen yet on the cloud side, but certainly could before year end there. Finally, Byron, you know, one thing we, we continue to bring up, at least on this show, is um, the intersection between the demand for the cloud and the degree to which there's going to be savings in the billions of dollars on real estate as office space, as we imagined, and giants like Google uh, may say clearly that a fifth of their workers are not coming back to the same office. I wonder what kind of clues you're going to be looking for that that will be a tailwind for demand. Yeah, it's just one more signal. The distributed workforce is here to stay. I certainly think that the majority of workers are going to be back in some physical office. But collaboration tools, productivity tools, and remote access um, is now a permanent fixture of our work world. And so it goes back to underscore one of your opening comments that I highlighted, which was that this is the trend that's here to stay. It's better software. It's a better user experience. And it's 
uh, uniquely collaborative that feeds into this. And so we think that th that may be a further accelerant that holds. But overall, we're going to see the shift ripple through all sectors of software. And fundamentally, cloud computing will replace on-prem over the next decade. Well, buckle up, everybody. Byron Dieter, thank you. So good to be here. Bye-bye. And now a big hour of Tech Check is just getting started. Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. Get a gut check on Electronic Arts. Initially got a boost this morning off a beat on the top and the bottom line, and they do guide above on full-year revenue, but trading lower by about one and a quarter percent despite the updated annual forecast and the pandemic-related momentum. The former CEO of EA is going to join us in just a moment. Well, 2020 speculative tech darlings are all roughly 30% off their 52-week highs, so is it time for the bottom fishers? Uh, Bob Pisani, I don't know, you tell us. We talked about how far they've come down. Is it enough? Uh, it's a good question. You know, uh, Deirdre, thematic tech stocks really have been clocked, and everybody's trying to figure out if this is enough. So as a group, you heard from Deirdre, tech stocks, tech sectors that were red hot in 2020. I mean, clean energy and Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund, the 3D printing stocks, cloud computing, online retail. They've all turned cold in 2021. Look at this. Most of them are down 25 to even close to 40 percent here. But look a little deeper. There's even more damage to some of the really popular names we talk about all the time here. Clean energy in particular really has had a disastrous few months. Electric vehicle companies, solar stocks like Sun Power down 50, 60, even 70 percent. Cloud stocks like Fastly and JFrog and Snowflake, they had huge run-ups in 2020, seeing similar de declines. They rose almost 200% from the 2020 bottom. These stocks were hit very hard in mid-February, and they have never really recovered. Same thing, Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund, a very concentrated portfolio. About half this portfolio is just in 10 names. It's also seen declines of, well, you see here, anywhere from 25 to 50 percent. So the question now is, well, how much is enough? The problem is that all these stocks had huge run-ups on speculative bets 
they would be profitable far in the future. But when rates started moving up in mid-February and inflation concerns hit these stocks, they all got hit hard and they haven't recovered. The momentum crowd that was buying them could not sell to other momentum buyers anymore. And the fundamental investors, well, they were never interested in these stocks. So the question now is, is a 50% haircut enough? Guys, the problem here is inflation, of course, makes it a lot more difficult here. Look at these mega cap stocks like Amazon and Apple, though. They fared much better in the downturn because fundamental investors who were longer term buy and hold, they have not abandoned these stocks because they're not outrageously priced. Apple's 25 times forward earnings. So, guys, inflation, remember, makes it more expensive to borrow stocks, to borrow money that hurts stocks. But just generically, when inflation starts hitting, Investors in stocks demand a higher premium to compensate for the higher inflation. That puts a lot of pressures on companies like these that are marginally profitable or not profitable at all or don't, don't generate a lot of revenues. Higher rates, inflation, real problem for this group. Guys, yeah. back to you. Bob, I love that and how you're highlighting the difference between different groups in tech, like those, those bigger folks. I mean, I guess what the momentum folks really need is for the Dogecoin holders to sell out of that. And then buy those other stocks. They've got the money. Bob Pisani, thank that, you. That, that's yeah. a great point. A lot of money is going into that. And don't kid it. That's, the speculative money is in those stocks and in Dogecoins as well. It's a great point, John. <laughs> All right. Bob Pisani on top of it. Okay. Meanwhile, Unity Software shares volatile post-earnings. The video game developer beat estimates with a 41% jump in revenue, raising its 2021 outlook to $1 billion. Uh, Stiefel also takes the stock to a buy this morning with an upgrade. Joining us now... Uh, CEO John Riccatello. Uh, John, good to have you. Um, I, I want to take a step back, first of all, and ask, because mobile is an important market, particularly for your customers. What is the impact of Apple's iOS change, and might it over the long term drive customers to need to own their ecosystem and build their platform more, which I guess would lead them into the arms of Unity? Well, look, I, I think the uh, impact of the changes around IDFA and Apple's 14.5 um, operating system, it's, it's, I think for a lot of people, it's pretty murky. Um, it's still too early to call. For us, we feel a lot more confident. We, we ingest um, you know, tens of billions of data points per day, um, signal that we have on users of Unity applications. And the, the benefit of that is we also glean data on north of a billion events just in iOS 14.5 now. So we've got really good visibility on it. And based on that visibility, we felt comfortable, you know, not only with a strong beat in Q1, but raising our guidance by $50 million for the year. So I think we're in a really good spot. And I, and I know that's what you'd expect me to say, but I, I'm confident in us. I think others will be fine too, but I think some of, you know, some folks are going to be jarred by this. Um, mm -hmm. It might be their only data source is what they gleaned from iOS 14 or iOS IDFA. And if they're really dependent on that and they're suddenly blind on that side, it's going to be more challenging for them. Does that, and I guess that's what I was getting at, does that provide opportunities for platform creators and growers like Unity? You know, you're talking about how you have all of your data yourself. You're getting signal. You feel confident. You know, we've got, you know, AppLovin reported earnings also. Lots of these newer players that are uh, working on building a gaming ecosystem and tools. To what degree does that become, you think, more strategically important as some of the more traditional data sources might not be there? Right. I think you've got that, that's, that thesis 100% right. Remember now with Unity, 71% of mobile games are built, are built in Unity. That's an enormous presence. 
I'd love on a different strategy. They own a lot of hyper-casual games. And so they're monetizing games where they own them and they can get signal on them. Um, it's a different kind of business, but I'm sure they're fine. Um, I think we've got a fundamental competitive advantage that we bring to the table for our customers. Our customers use our monetization platform, our hosting platform, our tools to create content. And that really gives them a big advantage in mobile, which is why 71% of the time they choose Unity over building their own backend technologies or content creation technologies or um, you know, use one of our competitors. John, I spoke to Zenga's CEO um, last week who made an ad tech acquisition to bring more of that advertising data in-house. Do you think that we're going to see more M&A here? Do you need to do something? Are you looking at deals or do you have enough data in your existing model? Well, I mean, I'm not sure there's all that much M&A to do in this exact space. Um, there's a couple of players. Most have diversified using Apple as an example. They've diversified into publishing. They look more like Zynga than they do like a monetization platform today. So I'm not sure that we're going to see a whole lot of roll-up consolidation. Um, you know, Zynga is very ad-centric and some, you know, significant portion of the revenues. And I, I think they're trying to enhance their, their, their net take on that. Um, Frank's a smart guy, runs a business there. Um, you know, I think right now we're by far the leading platform, you know, sort of a, a dedicated to this to this arena. And we have been gaining share for some years now, and we're optimistic about the future. Uh, John, I got a controversial question for you because I think you're, you might be the best person, one of the best on the planet, to answer it with your history uh, at EA. Is the App Store mobile business model, that construct, fundamentally unfair? I mean, uh, the 30% take. Or are businesses like Unity that are providing ways to monetize, that are you know, creative and different and separated from that, making that whole argument that we see playing out right now in Apple versus Epic obsolete? Well, look, first off, let me just say, I'm, I'm, it's, I know this is hard to reconcile, but we're actually really friendly with Epic and Tim and the team there, and we're friendly with Apple. They're an important business partner to us. The second thing I think is step back for a moment from the perspective of the app stores. That 30% take rate across the range, pretty much every app store is at about a 30% take rate from the console companies to PC distribution stores and the app stores. And I think it's interesting to note that game companies retain you know, somewhere between 70 and 80% of consumer revenue. So they've got really good business models in the game industry. You know, film industry, music, they don't retain anywhere close to that. So the ecosystem to get today for the game industry is, is better than virtually any other form of media. And I get why people want to make it better. Um, now, remember that, you know, the two principal mobile app stores reach billions of consumers. That is a phenomenon new to this decade that's never, oh, I guess the last decade, it's never imagined before. I remember when we thought selling a million units of a game was huge, and now we can reach billions of users. On the Unity platform, you know, we reach 3 billion users a month. These, these reach numbers are, are just staggering, and I think there's a lot of platform benefit in that. Um, you know, is it worth 30% or 25 or 35? You know, I think that's a little bit of what the market, you know, set the price, and we'll see where it ends up. Yeah. Well, well said. Uh, I can read between the lines there. Uh, we'll see if the court ends up doing it instead of the market. John Riccatello from Unity, thank you. Thank you. Still to come this morning, uh, stocks that the street loves that investors don't. We'll look at the tech names still on the table for buyers. 
Meanwhile, it's the chip stocks providing the most pain for the NASDAQ 100 today, making up five of the top ten losers. 4% losses adding to declines on the week, which come in close to 10% in the case of AMAT and LAM Research. Tech Check is back in three minutes. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford, Deirdre Bosa, and Julia Borston with us this morning. Tech is back at the bottom of the indexes. The sector's down more than 2%. Apple and Tesla lower along with the broader fan complex. And it's not just chip names, DocuSign, Zoom, Okta, some of the smaller 2020 winners down four to five, as the NASDAQ has not yet gotten below yesterday's low. Let's get to Rahel Solomon for a news update. Hi, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Liz Cheney not backing down. That's after her removal and a voice vote from her GOP House leadership position. She's continuing her criticism of former President Trump's insistence that the election was stolen from him. I uh, will do uh, everything I can to ensure uh, that uh, the former president never again gets anywhere near the Oval Office. We have seen the danger uh, that he continues to provoke with his language. Uh, we have seen his lack of commitment and dedication to the Constitution. Uh, and I think it's very important that we make sure whomever we elect is somebody who will be faithful to the Constitution. Wow. And New York Representative Elise Stefanik has now officially launched her campaign to replace Cheney as House Republican Conference Chair. She says that the party needs to come together to defeat what she calls the Democrat socialist agenda. Now, some Republicans think that Stefanik isn't a true conservative, but Trump is a fan, calling her a gifted communicator who knows how to win. And government officials at the federal and state level are trying to find alternate routes to get gasoline to the southeast U.S. to replace the supply lost by the shutdown of the Colonial Pipeline due to a cyber attack. They are asking people not to panic by fuel, saying there is gasoline. It just needs to get to the right places. You're now up to date. Ginger, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thanks for that. Uh, meantime, take a look at Kathy Wood's ARC funds. The long-term charts, they're still strong despite the recent sell-off, but... If you look at the flows, you can see a majority of ARK investors, they just got in and they're already underwater. Dom Chu has the chart and breaks it down. And Dom, this is kind of part of the problem, right? The fund ballooned from less than $2 billion to over $24 billion AUM in just over a year. It is difficult to generate alpha at that scale. I mean, asset glut aside, when, you, when you're trying to take positions in some of these, you know, maybe some large cap names, but certainly smaller and mid cap ones that you consider to be transformational in terms of technology, it does become maybe a little bit more difficult to put kind of that kind of money to work in size in some of those types of names. Still, though, Kathy Wood's ARK Invest funds have done just that. They've done relatively well with it. But it's the performance chasing aspect that has some investors worried and calling attention to where people are kind of putting their money. Now, according to the data from the folks over at YCharts, they've tracked the periodic fund flows for the ARK Tech Innovation ETF, ticker ARKK, and looked at the returns over certain time periods. You can see here over a one-month time period where it's negative, over three months, year-to-date, six months, one year, three years, and five years. Now, as you can see, the flows overall have been big over the last five years when you count them all in focus. But it's here over the last six months to a year span where that fund has really surged in terms of performance that's brought a lot of people into the fold, and the fund flows reflect that. Right there, as you can see, this blue line is kind of like that move where the percentage gains here hit the peak, 
over the last year, that's where the majority of fund flows have come into place. So as you take a look at the way that the ARC funds are shaping up, we have mentioned it before. This is very much a momentum trade for many investors right now. Many of the stocks have been characterized as momentum tech type stocks as well. But when you deal with momentum type investing like this, it becomes one where you are chasing performance. And a lot of concern here, John, is whether or not folks are chasing the performance a little late in the game, Deirdre. That's going to be the really big deal. And, and it's something that a lot of financial advisors are likely warning their clients against right now. Yeah, Dom, does it also sort of raise the question of can ARC keep the same strategy that it had a year ago? You take a look at the makeup of its top 10 holdings and how that has changed. This is a fund, like I said, it was, what, $2 billion assets under management, so they could take bigger positions in small cap stocks. But when you have this much money now, it's a lot harder to do that. You can't really do that with a fund with tens of billions of dollars, right? You move the market too much. I'm glad you brought that up because as a former trader myself who did it at the institutional level, I can tell you that there is an art and a science to trying to get into and out of certain positions at the sometimes hundreds of million dollars or billion dollar type position type levels. It does move the market. If you sell wholesale or buy wholesale, you could move the market a lot. It's market impact. It's, a, it's something that traders track in terms of performance of the overall portfolio. But what it comes down to is ARC needs to have a very skilled team of traders, a, little, a very skilled team of brokers that execute those strategies. The bigger they get, they're going to run into asset glut concerns. That's going to be one of the chief issues that probably will face those ARC funds the bigger that they get. Asset glut is something that many fund managers, the likes of Fidelity, others have, have faced in their careers as well. So it's certainly a trend, guys, to watch. Listening to your favorite podcast? That's smart. Earning your degree online from Southern New Hampshire University? That's really smart. With 24-7 access to coursework, no set class times, and dedicated student support, you can go to school when and where it works for you. Low online tuition means you can even do it for less. And dedicated student support means we'll be with you from day one to graduation and beyond. Join a community of learners just like you. Go to snhu.edu today to start your free application. Brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional quality expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Dom, people are still trying to calculate what percentage of lifetime flows in the fund are now underwater given that so much of them, as you correctly point out, have come, have come in since November. Well, look at that chart. I mean, over the last six months, you could say roughly maybe half, a little more than half of the total funds that have come into this particular ETF have come in after kind of like that November time period over the last maybe five to six months, maybe even a little bit longer. So most of the people who have kind of gotten into this, if they have not been kind of risk managing around those positions, right, some people just buy one chunk. They maybe put X thousand dollars in at one time and that's it. 
Other people take a more periodic approach to this. They might have been legging in over time X hundred dollars or thousand dollars every month or two weeks or whatever it is. If you have those types of positions, you might be able to kind of better gauge some performance aspects on your own. But if you look at the wholesale flow picture, yes, it does appear as though a lot of the money has come into this fund just over the course of the last five or six months or so. Yeah. Reminds me of the overall market, Dom. Thanks. Uh, The biggest earnings mover of the morning. Meanwhile, Fubo TV, the CEO, joins us with Julia right after this break. In the meantime, watch into it. Mixed quarter, upbeat financial outlook and fiscal 2021 earnings. The sales guidance dampened a bit by a warning that results could be negatively impacted by the extension of the federal tax filing deadline. But boy, it's doing great for our software stock. It's actually in the green this morning, up almost a half a percent, also up about five for the year. We're back in a moment. Shares of Fubo TV seeing a big pop this morning post-earnings. It's well off the highs, but still up 11%. Julia Borston has the CEO in a first on CNBC interview. Julia. Thank you, John. I'm joined now by David Gandler, the CEO of Fubo TV, on the heels of those better-than-expected results, as well as that guidance uh, that you raised. David, thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me, Julia. So, David, looking at the trends of the quarter, higher advertising revenue, better than expected subscriber growth, more user engagement. As economies start to open up, my question is, how much do you think these growth trends are really sustainable as people have more options of things to do and more reasons to leave their count? Yeah, it's a it's a great question. And, um, you know, uh, last year we started to feel the impacts of COVID around March 15th. So based on the data that we have coming in uh, from March 15th to about April 15th, the numbers look uh, quite strong. And um, if you recall, pre-COVID, uh, people watched a lot of television. Uh, you know, Nielsen uh, put up numbers of roughly, you know, 300 hours per household watching, you know, traditional cable television. So, you know, we finished the quarter with an amazing 129 hours of viewership. And, you know, we, we don't think that's going to be impacted uh, in the second quarter. But in terms of people shifting over from pay TV bundles, you said you really benefited a lot from cord cutting. How much of that was a potentially, you know, one time bump or an unusual bump due to the pandemic rather than a growth trend that's going to be consistent going forward? Yeah, well, it's actually quite the opposite. We've seen a significant increase in viewership and subscriber numbers and advertising revenue since the start of the pandemic into Q4 and now uh, in Q1, and we don't see that, um, you, know, uh, you know, decreasing anytime soon. In fact, we've raised guidance, as you know, uh, to 520 to 530 million for the year, which is uh, a pretty aggressive number. And we're, again, very comfortable with the data coming in, and we're uh, excited about the opportunity. Uh, we're also getting into the wagering space. So, um, you know, lots for us to uh, look forward to and a lot for our uh, customers to, uh, to, uh, to gain value from. Yes, tell us more about this wagering space. You've made a number of investments in in gambling uh, and gaming on the platform. How do you see gaming being integrated into the Fubo TV service? Yeah, so look, I think what you're seeing from us is that we are looking to create a new category of inter- interactive television. 
and wagering is sort of that first component of it. Um, you know, we did acquire a company earlier this year. We have a fully functioning sports book. We are now going through the uh, regulatory uh, process, but we're taking a very differentiated approach. Our goal is to reduce the cost of entry uh, into wagering, which we think we can do that given our uh, video product. Uh, and we're also looking to create very attractive economics. As you know, people come to Fubo for the sports and they stay for the entertainment. So based on the data that we're collecting, uh, it looks like a good portion of our users would love to play, uh, you know, bet real money uh, on our platform. In fact, we over-index for people looking to bet on Fubo on its platform versus just the number of people that are betting and watching Fubo uh, TV today. Yeah, interesting. We recently had Jimmy Pitaro, the CEO of ESPN, talking about the potential in uh, gaming for that company as well. As you look at these other players in the streaming sports space, ESPN Plus, DAZN, we even heard from Paramount Plus how important live sports are for that product. How do you see the competitive landscape and how you're going to be competing not just for sports rights, but also for subscribers? Yeah, so um, as you know, we continue to gain market share of the virtual MEPD space. In 2019, uh, we had roughly about a 3% market share of virtual MEPD. And, uh, you know, today we're uh, roughly around, I would say, north of 5%. So we continue to take share. Uh, you know, our growth rate is over 100% uh, versus the virtual MEPD market, which is growing at about 25% uh, per year. And I think we're very uniquely positioned. I mean, we uh, have a sports service and we're getting regulated. We have three licenses. And I think the real key differentiator is our ability to merge the data from our video platform with a, a betting platform. Those two combined can allow, would allow us to create bespoke markets, uh, you know, leverage our data to really create uh, you know, unique and discrete types of betting opportunities for customers based on you know, the content that they watch, the teams that they like. And to be able to sort of, you know, leverage uh, what people are watching on screen to act to uh, update what's on your on your app, on your betting app, such as bet slips. I think that's going to be uh, a game changing opportunity, one where we are clearly ahead of the pack. Now, looking at the competitive landscape, though, separate from the betting opportunity, do you think you're going to be needing to make major investments in more sports rights as you go up against the likes of ESPN Plus and some of these other players? Yeah, a good question, Julia. Well, as you noted, you know, we are a uh, cable TV replacement service. We like to say, come, you know, Fubo is come for the sports, stay for the entertainment. Uh, so we have over 50,000 sporting events. We continue to uh, expand the number of regional sport, sports networks on the platform. Last quarter, uh, you know, we added uh, both uh, AT&T uh, you know, Sports Network out in Pittsburgh and uh, most recently Marquee, uh, which is in Chicago. So we have ample amount of sports. People come to us for the sports. And I think the big differentiator is that we're aggregating all of sports in one effective, efficient app that is customized and personalized for a phenomenal experience. And that's something very difficult to do when you don't have access to all sports. So we think that while the SVOD space is going to grow, we believe that eventually people will look to uh, aggregated services as they have in the past. Amazon is an aggregated service. Netflix is an aggregated service. Spotify, also an aggregated service. So again, we're very well positioned and we've used our data uh, in ways that have allowed us to really uh, improve our unit economics, drive uh, revenue growth, um, and improve uh, you know viewership on the platform, all of which have led to uh, you know, eight quarters of sequential uh, churn improvements. So again, we're excited about uh, Q1. We're excited about 2021 as well. 
Well, uh, David, we hope you'll come back and keep us posted on all of these uh, different growth areas, including the data and, of course, the gambling. Your stock now up nearly 12 percent. David Gandler, CEO of Fubo. Fubo, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Julia, thanks. Coming up, a record-breaking quarter from Masasan and where he's laying his golden eggs. That's coming up next. And then tomorrow, it's being called the summer of love. What will it mean for dating stocks? Julia's got the CEO of Bumble, Whitney Wolf Heard, after earnings right here on Tech Check. Stay with us. Time for a gut check on Norton LifeLock. Uh, strong earnings from the company yesterday, up 7%. B of A likes it. Double upgrade today to a buy from underperform on that strong growth number. And look for more tonight with Jim on Mad Money at 6 p.m. Well, Carl, the Masasan winning streak, it continues for now, smashing record profits, raking in almost $46 billion, the biggest for a Japanese company. His latest golden goose egg, as he calls them, that would be Korean e-commerce company Coupang that turned SoftBank's $2.7 billion investment into a $24 billion stake after it went public. But, guys, he is keeping the lessons of 2019 close, referring to his regrets during that earnings presentation overnight. He referred to failed investments like WeWork and Greensill and Katera, OneWeb. Now, SoftBank has also moved into the public market space over the last year, and that has proved tricky, too. $5.6 billion in total derivative losses at its SB North Star unit since last September. So, guys, you got to wonder where it stands in the current market volatility. But it is remarkable how, what, about five years ago, SoftBank was known primarily as a telecom company. Now it is this sprawling investment conglomerate. And, John, it is still early days. I listed some of those wins, but there's also some very large companies and potential returns in the pipeline like ByteDance and Didi that are expected to go public in the next little bit. Dee, this is one of those stories that I'm tucking away to, to humble myself because I was one of the people months ago, Carl, who was talking about the failure of the SoftBank thesis, focusing on WeWork and some of the other things that were suffering as the market turned down. But he pulled it out, right? And, and the thesis actually holds. Uh, so, you know, as we look at ARC now, I think that should cause us to be a little careful about how we judge the performance of some of these uh, you know, innovation stocks, at least in the near term. Yeah, they might be highly valued, but there might be something there. Yeah, I like it. I like the uh, humble pie, John. The other thing, guys, is the discussion of Bitcoin. You know, D, we're in this environment where either you're you're either totally on board with crypto or you're a firm bear. And in in, in Sans Kimasa-san's case, they're still talking about it, right? They really haven't figured out which way to go. But he does say you can't reject it outright. You know, it was the number one thing that I wanted to hear from him last night. I think a lot of folks were waiting for Masa to take a stance on cryptocurrencies, and he didn't. He said he's still thinking about it. And that was kind of surprising for um, an investor that takes big bets, that talks all the time about a 300-year vision, the importance of artificial intelligence, next-generation technologies. John, I guess we're going to have to wait a little bit longer for him to make up his mind there. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed we will. And now Coinbase just did something it hasn't since 2017. We will tell you what next. 
And meantime, Amazon's streak of court wins continues, this time a court rejecting the EU's contention the company had received unfairly favorable tax treatment. Second straight loss for Marguerite Vestiaire on that front after Apple. More on that online at CNBC.com. Tech Checks back in two weeks. The number one app in Apple's App Store, it's Coinbase, uh, just edging out TikTok and YouTube, a ranking the crypto exchange has not seen since 2017, also announcing a change to its hiring policy, telling candidates they will no longer be able to negotiate their salary, take it or leave it. This is a company now known for some of its workplace culture policies, all remote workforce, and the CEO, of course, banning political discussions at WorkD. Um, fascinating how we're beginning to get a real view in, into some of these workplaces and how they differ from employer to employer. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, it's good to keep in mind these policies, they create a lot of noise from commentators, but you see Coinbase continuing to, you know, push forward. At least, at least it, I see they're being clear about this, and you take it or leave it. In the case of Basecamp, John, <laughs> many employees decided to leave it. So that, I suppose, is the risk that you do take. Well, on this Coinbase policy, at least on the face of it, I think this is great. They, they lay it out. They say that they're paying in the 75th percentile uh, of stock and equity. And the idea is to make it fair coming in, so not just certain cohorts of people who tend to be in traditional demographics end up negotiating the best pay. But the pressure goes on their performance management system, right? Because then people get different pay as they you know, go forward at the company based on performance, how well they do. Coinbase saying we want the higher performers to make more money. So is the data they're collecting on performance really that great? Are they going to be able to measure that fairly? That's what it comes down to. But hey, if they can, that's fantastic. At least that's what I think. It's an effort at meritocracy, which sometimes doesn't turn out D, the way companies want it to. Yeah, I think good intentions sometimes can be easier said than done, but uh, at least at least it's clear. Meanwhile, guys, Bird takes flight. The company going public via SPAC. The CEO is up next. Plus, we are keeping our eye on the regulation beat, as always. Big tech critic Lena Khan takes one step closer to joining the Biden administration. Her nomination has advanced out of committee. Four Republicans voting no. Tech Check is back in just two. One more thing before we go, Bird, the e-scooter company going public in a SPAC deal, valuing it at $2.3 billion. I caught up with founder and CEO Travis Vanderzanden about the latest wave of SPAC and why he chose this method. We've really entered SPAC 3.0 now, which is you're going to see uh, real companies with real business models and real revenue starting to, to SPAC. And I think the pipe investors are demanding that. And so we're excited to be part of this new wave of SPAC 3.0. Be sure to check out that full interview online. Carl and John, we will see about SPAC 3.0. The projections made in this investor deck, they were ambitious from millions in losses to millions in profits over the next few years. We will see, but we've seen with other SPACs that those projections can quite easily be pulled back and disappoint investors that thought they were buying into one thing only to learn another. Yeah, uh, we know how torrid the first couple months of the year were in terms of issuance and volume. 
quieted down in a hurry on those SEC guidelines, and we'll see if there's an Act 2 in the first half of 2021. We'll get Bumble and Sonos tonight. Uh, Let's get to the judge who's back in the half. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.